Get away from her, you bitch! Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we dive deep into the pop culture from the 80s and 90s, which happens to be When We Were Young, long before we became the dried-up has-beens we are now. I'm a moist has-been, thank you very much. You certainly are. It is kind of hot in here. From indisputable masterpieces like Nirvana's Nevermind and Seinfeld to more debatable picks like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you can find us yammering, bickering, and waxing nostalgic about the movies, TV, and music of yesteryear twice per month, or actually pretty much all of the time, but we only record it twice per month. If you hang out with us in real life, it's just, it never turns off. Nope, it's basically just 24-7 podcasting. No, the only difference is microphones and editing. That's it. I am Chris, your podcast host, most likely to strip down to his underwear immediately following a fight to the death with a space beast. I'm Seth Pearson, the co-host most likely to bleed acid while being surgically removed from your face. And I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to mostly come at night. Mostly. (laughs) Mine was almost going to be that. (laughs) I'm very excited that I predicted Becky's intro. Um, (laughs) I'm very glad that at least one of us comes at night mostly. (laughs) (laughs) Today we are going back further than we've ever gone before on the podcast, back to the summer of 79, which saw the release of the first of many Alien films. The series had a pretty seismic impact on the cinematic landscape with many imitators over the years, particularly any space movie I think owes a little something, at least to Alien, that's been made since then. The first three films in the series are directed by Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and David Fincher, who are three of the most notable mainstream filmmakers of the past few decades. So they definitely did a good job of selecting who's making these movies. And then the fourth one is Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who uh, did Amelie. So I guess he's not quite as prestigious as them. He did a few other ones, but he's probably a little bit more well-known in France. Then in 2012, Ridley Scott returned to the franchise with the semi-prequel Prometheus and will return again this month with Alien Covenant, the eighth Alien film overall, which is going to be released on May 19th. Eight too many, maybe? (laughs) Well, not eight. (laughs) Well, we'll get that. We'll get that. A couple too many, at least. (laughs) Also, unfortunately, Bill Paxton passed away at the end of February, so we thought it was a good time to revisit one of his movies, seeing as he kicked off the podcast in our first episode on Twister. R.A.P. Yeah. Mr. Paxton. We love our Bill Paxton, and he will be missed, but very Not cherished forgotten. in uh, mm-hmm. many of the movies that we will probably keep mm-hmm. on discussing. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we'll get to Titanic later this year, so. Yeah, no, Paxton's going to be coming back. Pretty sure every James Cameron movie could be on this podcast. I certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. Most of them. I've got yeah. something to say about all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Different things to say about them, but things nonetheless. Yeah. yeah, so in light of this, it just seemed like a really good time to revisit Lieutenant Ellen Ripley and her many, many dead friends. <laughs> <laughs> she is a bad luck charm. <laughs> if I befriend Honestly, her, I'm going to run away. <laughs> if you wake up on a spaceship with Ellen, just end it. <laughs> Split yeah. your wrist now. Before we get into the episode, we will take a look at new reviews. Ooh. Ooh, do we have tons, Chris? <laughs> we have did they one roll in? new five-star review. Five stars. The title of this review is I Wish I Had This Podcast When I Was Young. <gasps> and it's by uh, Bex Machine. <laughs> Bex Machine. Wow, what a coincidence. That's my exact iTunes username. <laughs> Wait, what? No. So, uh, Beck's Machine This writes, is like insider trading. Hold on. <laughs> a hilarious and informative podcast featuring lively discussion and debates on the music, movies, and TV shows we all loved as a kid. I'm sure in 20 years, this podcast will hold up great. 
I so. stand by my review. <laughs> Thank you, Becky, for I'm not reviewing. sure there will be anything in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. Honestly, I wanted to get the ball rolling. Give us reviews. You're optimistic. In 20 years, it'll just be like a barren wasteland, and they'll be like, Remember when there was pop culture? We had movies and music and TV. And children will be like, what? (laughs) All we have is ashes. We'll have a quarter million subscribers, all cockroaches. They'll live forever. And they'll love iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying that the world will be cockroaches, but iTunes and Apple will still be around. Yeah, there'll still be apps. When all humans die, the interweb will be left behind and the cockroaches will take it over. Hmm. So So they'll actually be nicer than humans were. This really does actually feel like the premise of a movie where like the cockroaches <laughs> suddenly become smart enough to use computers. It's like Planet of the Cockroaches. Uh, I was thinking Netroach, but that's that's a cool one too. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm still in the ideas phase here. Keep working. <laughs> I'm trying to this attach to the talent. basic plot of Prometheus Legacy or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> Prometheus Origins? What the hell is this new movie called? Alien Covenant. Alien Covenant. You got none of the words. Congratulations. (laughs) It it is a Prometheus sequel, though. Yes. And an alien prequel. Uh, We'd like to ask a general question before we really get into the meat of the discussion. So my... uh, What are nouns? (laughs) (laughs) What is a podcast? My question for you guys today is, what is the grossest thing to ever burst out of your chest? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've got a very good answer for this, so I will that go not first. That's no, not exactly my real question, but it is kind of related to my what real question. What is the question. most beautiful thing? <laughs> I do not have an answer for that one. <laughs> no, it's about body horror, though. Like, when did you first become aware of body horror or, like, injuries and stuff. And a lot of people have a specific thing that they don't like to see in a movie, where the, whether oh. it's, like, eyes oh, or it's fingernails. Eyes. It's eyes. Okay, well, moving on. It's w- the first time I saw a Clark Oak Orange, or if I see any movie so where... So at one year old? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was 13. <laughs> oh, it wasn't, like, playing on a mobile over your crib? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't grow up in a haunted house. <laughs> Well, first of all, that would be a strange thing to have in a haunted house, because you walk through a haunted house, you don't get strapped down oh, in okay. one. But <laughs> I think Becky, Becky's ultrasound had its eyes taped open. <laughs> I have terrible eyesight, and I refuse to get LASIK surgery, because I don't want lasers near my eyes. I don't even want to picture that. A reasonable that. thing to say. Do you think LASIK is like clockwork orange? No, I know that they have to keep your eye open, and I know that you're awake during it. So no thank you. I'll have bad eyesight the rest of my life. <laughs> Fair enough. What about what Maybe other choice. kind of did you have any injuries or anything like as a child that seemed that like kind of made you aware? Mm, not really. I once got splinters in the roof of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what? This is a story. <laughs> You're tossing that off like, oh, I once broke my elbow. Like, no, you need to like go into how a, splinters may have found a, their way into your mouth. We had a deck and then it was made out of wood. And oh I God. had my chin resting on the edge of the deck. And then I think some like birds or something startled me. And like I bit down like on the deck. <laughs> like, I don't know how a splinter got in there, but like, yeah. So that's me. Was that's, it many splinters or like one splinter? I think it was a couple. I, I mean, that's the first thing that I can think of. I've never, I didn't really get to Were you watching injuries. like Friday the 13th at <laughs> no. this moment and you got startled or something? No. And I've never had an eye injury. I just have bad eyesight, but like anything, I can't, I can't look at it. It's disgusting to me. Any eye stuff, gross. Just talking about it now. I'm like, 
end of conversation. I don't want to even yeah, think Yeah, we have to it. end the podcast early because <laughs> Becky is crying yeah. and so that's driving. That's my answer. Like, I didn't have any particular, like, aversion to gore. Like, I've always found it kind of fascinating. When you were, like, dissecting pigeons at the age of five. Yeah, you know, it always starts with small animals. Mm-hmm. When I was also very much, like, an outdoor, like, play with bugs, spiders, and insects, and, like, weird... You still are. There are many yeah. insects <laughs> crawling over Seth right now. <laughs> I sleep in a very large spider nest. Then in terms of particular body horrors, I had an MRSA, which is the penicillin-resistant staph infection. You had a Marissa? I did. It's, <laughs> well, no, they refer to it as a MRSA, oh. as MRSA. But I had one on my, on my chest, uh, on my tum. Wait, what does that involve? That involves a chest burster. What, wait, what does it really involve? Um, it's just like a very, very severe infection, and it's resistant to most typical antibiotics. And if left untreated, it can quickly infect your blood and kill you. Wait, so what did they do to you? So I went to a dermatologist and they drained it. Like they stuck things in your mm-hmm. in your chest or stomach? Yeah. And, and like wow. completely drained it and then gave me like super hardcore antibiotics and probably like a steroid injection too to like to amplify that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked. Great, you're alive Yay! today. <laughs> yeah. How old were you yeah. when this happened? Um, I was probably 23 or 24. Oh, I was thinking this was a, more of a young childhood no, thing. No, it was it was definitely full on adulthood. So I totally remember that. Mm. Uh, and it's one of the most painful things I've ever had. And I've oh. had a lot of really like random painful physical things. Splinters in your mouth. No mouth splinters. When I was very like when I was too young to remember, I was like toddling on the bed and fell off the bed onto the nightstand on my face and like had top teeth go through my Ooh, bottom lip ah. um, but i don't remember any of that Ooh. that's probably a good thing i'll never forget I mean, I, thankfully i don't remember <laughs> any of that because it would be absolutely horrific yeah well it's very appropriate that the alien episode is the d- most disgusting <laughs> episode yep. of the podcast we've had <laughs> yeah. so far we've got chest bursters we've got yeah. mouth wood what, it, what about you <laughs> mouth wood <laughs> I have a van ear is my would be my <laughs> horror body horror. Is that a secret name you've had this whole time? <laughs> Chris Vanier. <laughs> so we used to have a van in my family and the sliding door on the side was broken, so you had to slide it as hard as you could in order to get it to close. And one time I was coming out of the van and my sister had gotten out before me, and so she did the slamming of it as hard as she could. But she didn't know I was coming out of the van, so it caught me right on the head and, like, right on the ears and, like, slammed my head in the door. And both of my ears turned purple for a week. Wait, both? Both. Yeah, because it was both. It, like, hit both sides of the... It wasn't just... Oh, your your head got stuck in. Yeah, my whole... Oh, no. Yeah, my whole head. Oh, my God. That's, like, a wrestling move. Yeah. Jesus. So that was my... uh, Probably my biggest, like, body horror story from child childhood. I fell off a bike once before that, and that was kind of bloody, but that Did was... Did both your ears turn purple, though? Uh, I mean, now they just spontaneously turn purple. Yeah, I was going to response. Ask. Yeah. You didn't van your yourself earlier today. Yeah. So, yeah, gross. Everyone had something gross <laughs> happen to them. You guys were all gross. Why don't you leave us more That's iTunes why we're reviews? <laughs> <laughs> Our next round is just going to be one star. Gross, gross. <laughs> I threw up during this episode. <laughs> As mentioned, we are talking about the Alien Quartet, I guess, mostly the first two films, but we'll also touch on the latter 
too. And I guess maybe talk a little bit more about what else happened after that. So what is your guys' history with the Alien franchise? Did you guys see it when you were kids, teenagers, not at all? You know what? Surprisingly, I don't remember the exact first time I watched either of these movies. And this they weren't movies that were part of like my life as a child. I do remember my mom watching Alien on TV. But for some reason, it just like didn't appeal to me. Not because it was scary, just for some reason, I didn't have a thing with aliens. Like no one's doing um, heroin in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the first time I watched either one, but I think maybe freshman year of college, I saw Alien for the first time. I have a vague memory at USC. There was, I don't know, you would call it like a dorm dad guy that lived in the dorm mm, on the, like the first floor. I'm an RA. I believe that's called a molester. Not an RA. Not an RA. <laughs> like he was an older man. A dorm daddy? I didn't have a dorm daddy, Becky. Did he live in that the was, alley out back and did you go was, visit him? I swear this is a real thing. He lived on the first floor and he... (laughs) A bunch of us would go. And, and when he, it's dark outside, his, he comes out. Let me tell the story. He, his place was... This is his nickname, Facehugger. <laughs> I'm sorry. His whole entire room was just filled with movies. I was going to say filled with dead bodies. <laughs> like, filled with movies and laser discs. Was this at New? Yes. Yeah, I remember that guy. I was just but talking. who was he? He was a professor at USC. What? And I yes. totally, I forget his name. I and I will name. always forget his name. But he lived on the fr- first floor. He lived on the first floor. And his place was filled with movies. Apparently he's still alive. I had assumed that he had been drowned by his video movies. and laser disc collection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's still alive. He's like still professor. All right, good. He's like an international studies professor. And a dorm daddy. <laughs> It's it's I feel like the term is gonna throw a lot of people off here. <laughs> Becky, I call him the DVD. He was the dorm video daddy. But yes, he had a million laser discs yeah. and I may have watched this for the first time on a laser disc in his place with a bunch of other kids from our freshman room floor. Obviously not you, Chris. <laughs> For the record, I would like to say I lived in the same <laughs> building on the same floor as Becky, and I have never heard of this person. <laughs> and I am very skeptical that he is a real person. He I was think never real, Becky. <laughs> she dreamed of some magical daddy that had every movie you could ever watch. Mm-hmm. That was Alien. And then I think Aliens I may have watched the first time when I had a sketch show that I wrote and produced, and it was called King of the World, a James Cameron Sketchtacular. <laughs> and we did, every sketch was a different James Cameron movie. And I think that's when I watched Aliens for the first time. Oh, really? So what year was that? Maybe like five years ago. I think maybe I saw like bits and pieces of it, but didn't actually like watch it hmm. um, till then. Interesting. So I, it's, it's surprising that these movies weren't like more close to me as a kid. Especially since you were allowed to watch things <laughs> yeah. bursting out of people's uh-huh. chests. Yep. All right, what yeah, about you, it's, Seth? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like Becky and I have switched here, wherein uh, I like watched this stuff basically from birth. Mm. My cousin, who was a writer-director, was always super into the Alien franchise and really into Predator and kind of a lot of action-y, sci-fi, horror-y type of movies. Horry? Horry, yes. Uh, Showgirls. <laughs> like so many titles on the roster of when we were young honorees. This was taped on a home VHS tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe we had both Alien and Aliens. I don't know if we ever made it to three, but yeah, I definitely watched this at kind of all stages of my life. So I guess I fall between you guys because I this wasn't a big part of my younger childhood, but I did see them when I was a teenager. I think my first memory of the Alien movies is 
toys actually because I would always be in the toy aisle like looking at Jurassic Park toys and stuff and I remember like Alien was not a movie that I was allowed to see and I remember finding it strange that a movie that was so scary would even have toys like I don't in retrospect Hmm. I'm kind of surprised that this like now they don't market movies like a rated R movie I don't think they ever have toys anymore that are like aimed at children it's for like adult collectors. Yeah, they might have those, but they're not sold in like the toy aisle of a Target, like where I would be looking at them. But back then they were, and I would see this and I was like, is that something I should know? Because it's like when you're a 10 year old boy or whatever, you think whatever is a toy, like you should know what it is. You mm-hmm. should have it. And this was something that was out of my radar. So it kind of always felt like this very adult thing. It was just strange that it appeared in the toy aisle. Like a few other people, I was a big fan of Titanic when it came out in 1997. Mm -hmm. So that was really my gateway drug to James Cameron, I believe. And I do remember Alien Resurrection coming out. And I don't think I had really seen the movies at that point because I wasn't interested in watching it. So I think I might have, I must have just caught up with them like right after that. So probably like 1998, because otherwise I would have probably wanted to see this movie. But um, what Aliens mostly reminded me of when I was thinking of my childhood was widescreen movies because I had a large collection of widescreen movies. It's very important. Yes. It was very important. But it was back when you could choose between yeah. uh, standard and widescreen. Why anybody would choose standard, I don't know. Oh I my know. God, I had this argument with my mom so many times. Me too, yeah. Never. She was like, why do you want to see less of the movie? I'm like, that's not what it's more like. Of the movie. No, it's not no what it's like at all. You don't get it. Somehow the Jurassic Park that my parents bought for me that I was probably like foaming at the mouth to get was the letterbox edition. And I I don't think that they chose that on purpose. I think it was an accident, but it happened to be a good accident because it was the good edition, the letterbox edition. And I don't remember exactly how I discovered it, but the Fox widescreen movies had a whole commercial in the beginning of them that told you exactly why you needed to watch the widescreen version and showed you like comparisons of what would be cut out on certain Fox movies like Speed and Independence Day. Get the full impact of widescreen action and THX sound when you buy any film in the new widescreen series. Speed, True Lies, The Last of the Mohicans, and The Abyss. Why didn't I have that commercial to show my mom? Watch the commercial, mom. You see more of it. I'm pretty sure I made a lot of people watch these commercials with me. Friends would come over and they would be mad that I had the black lines. They're not your real friends. This is why I had to move to LA because no one. <laughs> I'm going to move somewhere where people appreciate the black lines. Yeah, I mean, and I remember even before I really knew about widescreen, like watching pan and scan movies and seeing them scan in a weird way. Oh, those are the worst. Yeah, and I would notice that something was off. I was like, kind of pointed out to other people and they'd be like, I didn't notice anything. So we were all conditioned to look at movies in a different way than Mm -hmm. I think a lot of other people did. It always totally knocked me out of the experience of watching a movie. Yeah. Like, and for some people, it's somehow subtle enough that they don't notice it. But for me, it takes me out every time. Yeah. So I had uh, exactly eight, I believe, Fox widescreen VHS tapes. And I know this because they were in a hard shell instead of a normal VHS box. So <laughs> oh, they man. had to go on top of the TV. So they were <laughs> the crown jewel of my widescreen collection. <laughs> oh, welcome to my household. Uh, above the TV or Fox collection. <laughs> they were all gold. <laughs> uh, cast solid gold. The, um, yeah, the cover art was like a coppery gold color. 
<laughs> and I had uh, three James Cameron movies, The Abyss, True Lies, and Aliens, as well as Speed, Speed 2, Broken Arrow, and Speed Volcano. Two. <laughs> Speed 2. Speed 2. We're going to do, do an episode on Speed and Speed 2, I think. Someday. And I'm trying to remember what the last one was. I think it might have actually been the first Alien, but I don't have very specific memories of seeing either. I know I saw them when I was a teenager, but I don't have any good stories around them besides the maybe I was just watching the opening commercial about them being widescreen that might have been as far as I got <laughs> I'm just imagining you like uh, inviting friends over and just showing them that commercial we're not going Wait, to no, watch any of the movies not, you just have to look at my beautiful collection night. this is an informative night yeah and these movies are also they had like featurettes on there in the trailers so they were really a precursor to DVDs and so now I feel vindicated because now everyone's TV is the shape that I wanted them to be <laughs> yes <laughs> And I'm like, I told you it was coming. I warned you, people. You regarded me as a crazy man before. And now people get mad when there's lines on the side of their screen because it's when they have things that are like in the old TV shape. Also my mom. Vindication. So did you, so when did you first watch Alien and Aliens? I was a teenager, so I was probably like 16 or 17. Did you find them scary? No, probably not because I was watching them on video, I feel like in the daytime. And I don't think I was as scared as... I mean, we'll get into the movies, but I find the first one pretty scary now, even. But mm-hmm. I don't remember being scared by them in particular. And the second one, especially, is more of an action movie and not so much of a horror movie. So. What about you, Seth? Were you scared by them ever? I was always scared, even from a very young age, by the design of the alien creature itself. And I was always scared by the first movie because I first saw them so, so long ago. I have no idea which of them I saw first. But I picked up from very early on that, like, Aliens was a much more action-adventure type of movie. And Alien is a much more cerebral, scary, claustrophobic horror movie. And so I was always scared by the first one and still am, but I was never really scared by the other ones. Going off of what you just said while we're sitting here, I remember the first time I ever encountered the xenomorph was when I was... (laughs) (laughs) Was it in the dorm daddy's room? (laughs) No. um, He called it encountering the xenomorph. (laughs) (laughs) Like the character, because I didn't watch these movies. I was at... Once you have encountered the xenomorph, is my new favorite euphemism. <laughs> Once you encounter the xenomorph, like you don't euphemism? go back. Yes, it is definitely a sexual euphemism. <laughs> it is definitely. <laughs> go on. Why do I bother talking? <laughs> Workshop at the pleasure chest. Encountering Why do you the xenomorph talking on this you? podcast. <laughs> You should just sit here silently. <laughs> she will now. I was a little kid, and I think it was Universal Studios if not Disneyland, probably Universal Studios Florida, and they do one of those tours, and like, you're now you're in the King Kong area, and King Kong's gonna like attack, and now you're in the Jaws area, here comes Jaws, and I think they had Alien. And, and now you're gonna encounter the sea <laughs> But like, I remember, like, we're in, I, and I had not seen the movies, so what, whatever I knew of Alien, I think at first was on this ride, and, and, you know, you hear scattering above you, and the grating, and then, like oh no and then it like pops down and it's animatronic yeah. but like it looks scary mm-hmm. and i remember being scared of that like it looked really scary and i remember like closing my eyes and i don't remember how old i was i was probably less than 10 years old now that you mention it i actually remember that as well i think it was universal, it was universal. studios yeah. in florida yeah okay yeah i think that's 
probably where I first encountered the xenomorph as well. <laughs> Cheeky. <laughs> I believe that the Alien 5 tagline is encounter the xenomorph. <laughs> what is the xenomorph age of consent in Florida? <laughs> what, would I, what was I supposed to say? <laughs> saw Anything but encounter the xenomorph. Saw an alien? <laughs> I don't know. Could have gone with that. <laughs> So we were going to call this episode Get Away From Her, You Bitch, but it's possible that it will now be called Encounter the Xenomorph. <laughs> That's a strong contender. I'm just going to say that up front. I feel like we anyway, can say Anyway, I, rem- I remember being scared of that. So even though I hadn't seen the movies, like I was just scared of the alien. I mean, I think I was even scared by it when I saw the toy of it. I think I n- knew that it was something that if I watched that movie when I was at that age, I would have probably shit my pants like Mm -hmm. it was too like I had a sense that this was something that was going to be too scary for me at that time I would like you guys to come with me to encounter the xenomorph uh, (laughs) for the very first time (laughs) like a virgin Uh, in May 25th 1979 uh, Jimmy Carter was president Peaches and Herbs Reunited was top of the charts for a solid month. (laughs) But it was right between Blondie's Heart of Glass and Donna Summer's Hot Stuff. So I was like very confused. There was a whole month of this song when those songs were out. Mm. And we were young, 79. (laughs) This movie was released two weeks after Apocalypse Now and one week before the Muppet movie. And Laverne and Shirley was the top TV show. All right. Yeah. Wow. So the Alien franchise was created by Dan O'Bannon, a screenwriter who took some elements from a story he wrote about gremlins attacking soldiers on a World War II submarine and then adapted them into uh, people being attacked on a spaceship. Uh, He met John Carpenter as a USC film student, and they together made a low-budget sci-fi comedy called Dark Star, which is what got Dan O'Bannon noticed um, so Alien, the original script, was meant to be fairly low budget, too, and they pitched it as Jaws in Space. And Fox was not too excited about spending a bunch of money on a sci-fi movie until Star Wars came out. Oh, and yeah, then, this was... Two, I can't believe this was two years after Star Wars. Yeah, all of a sudden they were very eager to make this into a big blockbuster. So they threw a lot more money at it than it would have gotten otherwise. So what was the budget? The budget was $11 million. They pushed it up, I think, around to like $4 million. That was the original budget. And then when Ridley Scott came on, they pushed it up to 8 And then maybe it just went over budget from there. But wow. it kept getting more expensive. H.R. Giger is very synonymous with this movie. He's the guy who did the design of the alien xenomorph itself. He is the first encounterer. (laughs) (laughs) He encountered it in his imagination. (laughs) He did. He also did, like, the alien ship. And they're very similar. Yes, they are. And so he's a Swiss sculptor. But Dan O'Bannon actually based the alien that he was even writing about on the designs of Giger. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he was part of it, really, from the beginning. Ridley Scott also had only directed one movie, which won Best Debut at Cannes. It was called The Duelist. It's not a movie I'm familiar with. But like this is pretty much an introduction to everyone. Sigourney Weaver was a very unknown actress for the most part. She was a Yale graduate from theater school and had done some Broadway. She had a small part in Annie Hall, but she was certainly not known as an actress. She was in her mid-20s? In yeah, she was well, late, yeah, mid to late 20s. Isn't that amazing? In, yes. Wow. In 1979, she was like late 20s wow. and she's still doing stuff today. 
And she was cast 10 days before production began. She was the last person in the cast. Really? Cast. Yeah, she did her audition, basically, or a screen test on the actual set of the movie because it was already being built. So she was able to actually, like, kind of go through the entire script and audition for it. But uh, Ridley Scott said, I was listening to the commentary today, that as soon as she even walked in, he was like, yep, that's Ripley. But interestingly, Tom Skerritt was first cast as Ripley. Then (laughs) Veronica Cartwright was supposed to be Ripley. So Sigourney Weaver was the third person that's actually in Alien to be cast as Ripley. So it was originally a part for a man. Yeah, so the script was written unisex. Dan O'Bannon just did not really want to deal with developing the characters. He just, he wrote a note into the script that said all characters could be male or female. So Interesting. It's interesting because, and we'll get to it but this these movies have a huge like feminist mm-hmm. mother like maternal thing going on in them absolutely yeah well and i mean there's just a lot of gender politics yeah all over the place mm-hmm. um so it's interesting yeah. that that even wasn't a part of the original script that he was hoping to like put into the movie yeah i think it's really interesting and like the fact that Ripley could have been a man and just to imagine like if this movie had been all men I don't think it would be the same franchise that it was I mean obviously the sequels would be very different movies but I I just don't know that it would have been that popular at all and that's even without saying like if it weren't for Sigourney Weaver as Ripley like what would that franchise have ever been she is so synonymous with that franchise to me Mm -hmm. even having had really iconic roles and other things. It's really shocking to me, actually, that she only signed on like 10 days before it was filming. That's crazy. Yeah, and we don't know necessarily that Sigourney Weaver would have had much of a career if not for this movie because this movie made her a Mm -hmm. household name. So she made the franchise, the franchise made her. It's all very... Uh, Xenomorphy. <laughs> yeah. The movie was a hit, obviously. It grossed $80 million in the U.S. and worldwide grossed $104.9 million. The reviews were actually pretty mixed at the time, so it was not an instant classic. Hmm. Um, I'll go into that a little bit more. But um, So we all watched Alien recently, so what did you guys think of it now? I actually watched Alien and Aliens just three or four months ago after not having seen it for probably ten years. Oh, wow. And uh, I had never appreciated Aliens as much, but I really grew to enjoy it more. And so I rewatched both of them again yesterday. And I still absolutely love both of those movies. Taken together, it's a really effective and well-constructed kind of two-part story. We will get into... (laughs) what we think about the third part, but I mean, I still feel like Alien is an incredibly effective, claustrophobic, suspenseful horror movie. And it's a deceptively small story for such a large scale thing, which is a thing that I always appreciate, but especially in sci-fi. It's also surprising to me to hear that the characters were that thinly written out in the script because I do feel like as relatively little time as they spend in the movie characterizing them, each of the characters is very specifically drawn and you do kind of feel for them as they're eliminated over the course of the story. And I really love... Ellen Ripley. I think she's a pretty awesome heroine. Almost as good as Black Tar. 
Yeah, it's kind of my second favorite, Jacinda Blacktar. And drawn in a way that she is strong while also being very feminine, which I think is a thing that women in the kind of action hero role in the few times when they're put in that role aren't allowed to be feminine. I think they really, really hold up. And we'll get more into Aliens, but yeah, I'll pass it along. Aliens was always my favorite, and I always liked Alien, but never really thought about it. I think when I saw this last week, it was maybe my third time watching Alien ever. And I always kind of thought like, oh, it's slower. You know, oh, I remember the chest burst scene and I remember this. I don't really think about it because I always thought Aliens was more exciting. But watching Alien again, you know, knowing we're gonna talk about on the podcast, I really like paid attention and I was just so impressed. I was really, really impressed. It holds up so well. I can't believe this movie is from 1979. In every respect, it doesn't feel dated. The most dated thing in the movie is her underwear at the end. <laughs> she, has the tiniest, <laughs> she has the tiniest underwear on in the world, and that's like the most 1970s yeah, thing in she it. She has dental floss underwear. Yeah, even the computers don't even bother me so much, but like that underwear is like the most 1970s <laughs> underwear in the world. But besides that, like I cannot believe that this was two years after Star Wars. Like mm-hmm. the sets and just everything felt so in control. Ridley Scott only had done one movie besides, mm-hmm. like he just feels so experienced. I didn't realize Star Wars was literally just two years before this. It feels to me like Star Wars is such a big budget prestige, like, I don't know, it almost seems like an old, it is a very deliberately old Hollywood style kind of swashbuckling movie. Mm -hmm. And this feels like so gritty and so much darker, even though that's literally about warfare, and this is like technically a story about a. a it's a holler. haunted house movie. It's in a the haunted house in movie the, in, in like the space. Yeah, it, but in like a space hauler truck. <laughs> spaceship um and it just feels like a, a an indie movie versus like the big old style yeah. hollywood even though it is a studio movie you know it just feels so much more real yeah i mean i think it that's definitely a tribute to ridley scott i mean star wars was a fairly low budget movie too when it started and was written off as kind of a joke like no one thought it was going to be a big hollywood blockbuster it was cheap it had no stars in it at the time and the one thing that kind of links them is that the sets from Star Wars were more like throwbacks to like older things and that's also true in Alien is Aliens the spaceship set the Nostromo was created out of old aircraft parts that they then oh, wow. like glued together and then painted all to match. So they wanted this look that was old, you know, and I think that's why the movie looks so good now is not every spaceship is going to be pristine. Like if you're sending this thing out into space for dozens of years, mm-hmm. however long it takes for them to get there and back, you wouldn't send like the nicest spaceship that you have. If you're d- if these guys are doing like some kind of fairly crappy job out there, you're going to just send them in a hunk of junk. Yeah, they're like space truckers, basically. It's yeah, a hauler. Or oil they're hauling, rig. They're hauling uh, mining ore. Yeah, I mean, you don't really learn that much about what they're actually doing in terms no, of their jobs. No, I honestly can't even tell you what they're doing. But I, it, they I definitely feel very blue collar. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. To, to the extent that they're like literally arguing throughout the course of the movie, there's a subplot where they're arguing about who gets a share of the profits from this haul. That's another like huge distinction is like, this is a thing that'll kind of become a larger element of the Aliens franchise is that there are class issues brought up in this whole series and it kind of runs through the entire thing. Mm -hmm. All of these space missions, all of the hauling and 
eventually we'll find out, spoiler alert, the uh, creation and introduction of the alien species is all happening under the auspices of this gigantic uh, interglobal mega corporation called the Wayland Yutani Corporation. It's really interesting because class is very deliberately left out of basically any other sci fi franchise I can think of. Um, but it's a big strand through all the characters. What I really loved was I thought the world building was amazing right, right off the bat. Oh, yeah. Um, the set direction, the tone was so ominous. I loved that the abandoned ship like, looked like the alien skeleton, mm-hmm. like the xenomorph's body. And so I thought that made it so much scarier. And it was so smart to do this because when they're walking through it, I couldn't tell if that was actually the alien or that was just part of the ship. And, and there are other parts of, I forget if it's alien or aliens, where like there's things that are hanging down and it's part of the ship, but oh, wait, no, it's the tail. Yeah. Like it, it's and just it's so, so brilliant. It's it's not just world building like that's pretty. It's that it's all like organic. It's exactly yeah, as you're saying. Yeah, it's not just like, the, the set, but just the world building of who they are and how they're interacting and, oh, yeah. and just the world of the spaceship and like that, and that, that, that world that, like, too. that like set direction and the set creation of that was always something that leapt out at me so much like being like oh wow these sets are so similar to the way that the aliens bodies are shaped and like it's it's just so beautifully done and it again just pulls you so much deeper into that experience of it because those characters are seeing those like crazy ass surfaces for the first time too Mm -hmm. yeah i mean this whole series is really a big mix of biology and technology and that's exactly reflected in these sets is that the alien is a biological creature, but its ship is going to be... They look so similar, and they you don't know where one ends and the other one begins. And then, obviously, the alien infects people through biology, and that's how it's born, is it needs the human body in order to mm-hmm. lay the egg to make the xenomorph that people can encounter. <laughs> <laughs> like, the fact that it's an egg that then opens into a face hugger that grabs you, lays an egg in your throat, then... Somehow, you know, you're the host gets body, off of you. and then, and then, like later, it bursts through your chest, and it's a small little thing, but then it grows very quickly into a big alien. I mean, that's a really cool monster design. Like now, I feel like I don't know when the last time I saw a monster that had even twenty five percent of that much thought put into it. Usually, it's just like, oh no, yeah. a giant monster. But not even just the xenomorph, but the face hugger is really interestingly designed. Mm-hmm. Man, can't be more impressed. It's Giger. Oh, okay. it's HR Giger. Yeah, yeah. He I did forgot the his aliens. name for a second. Yeah, <laughs> you go, Giger. Yeah, I think they're amazing and they're so iconic. And I can't think of another villain like creature that is that iconic. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a creature design that's as good as the like, alien. Even in the shots where I could clearly see like it's a human in a suit, but I like it's like I didn't even care just because it was so cool looking, like mm-hmm. the head. Um, that I didn't even care about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree on all counts. In researching for this, I actually learned that there's a more direct link between the kind of iconography of the alien designs. It really is alien, essentially a story about interspecies rape. It's not a huge stretch to notice that the design of the aliens is incredibly phallic. The spaceship itself is super phallic. There's penetrative and phallic imagery like all throughout every single layer from the face huggers to the creatures themselves with the kind of separate heads that come out of mm-hmm. their jaws. Decoy mouth. Yeah, the the dildo <laughs> decoy mouth. And I found a quote from Dan O'Bannon, the screenwriter and creator of Alien, and he said that one thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. 
I said, that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually. And I'm not going to go after the women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I'm going to put in every image I can think of to make the men in the audience cross <laughs> their legs. <laughs> Homosexual or awake. Birth. The thing lays its eggs down your throat. The whole number. <laughs> and there's a photo of the guy. <laughs> he looks like the nerdy version of Colonel Sanders. Uh, it I was going to say Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> he is very Redenbacher-esque. Um, and it was amazing to me to like see him spell it out that hmm. Openly, because rewatching it this time around, um, I definitely perceived that. And I think it is a big part of why it's been such a popular franchise, not just because of Ellen Ripley, not just because of the cool effects and all of that and the scares. There is an element of the kind of psychosexual imagery that runs throughout the series, and especially with those enemy characters that makes it especially threatening. Yeah, there are a lot of different theories about what the alien could stand for. It's been called a metaphor for AIDS, for cancer. And I think all of those things can be true. Like, it's just open for interpretation. You can Mm -hmm. look at it as something about rape if you want to. Although it kind of really equalizes gender in that way, in that it's not about like women specifically being raped. In fact, the first movie is it particularly goes to a man, so it's very interesting. Right. Well, and I and I took his quote as saying like he's turning the archetype of rape, which is a man attacking a woman, because it is. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, against the archetypal perpetrator of rape. Yeah, it's making men feel insecure because you're seeing a man's body being exactly. taken over against his will. Exactly. I took that quotation from a Cracked.com article, and he also said that he made the chest-bursting scene as violent as possible, specifically for that reason, to make it feel like you feel like it's violated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it really effective. I mean, it's gory, but it feels intelligently created, and it feels like it has a purpose. It doesn't feel like it's just like splatter movie gore. Like You're not watching it, enjoying that scene as like you do in some horror movies. And in general with these characters, you're not enjoying their deaths. It, it actually has a lot of dread in this movie and you feel for these characters. It was Ridley Scott who kind of made this into a horror movie. The script was kind of seen as more of a B-movie first and he wanted mm-hmm. to really ground it in reality. And so he was responsible for, I think, the tone of the movie and also the casting. He did not want the movie to come off as a cheesy B-movie. So he cast really, really good actors. That's why there's John Hurt and Harry Dean Stanton and Tom Skerritt. And they all bring a lot of gravity to the role. And I think like Seth was saying that the characters feel fleshed out, but they're actually not fleshed out at all. You don't know a single yeah, thing about hardly don't. any of them. You feel fl- they feel fleshed out because the dialogue is so natural that you feel like you're just kind of eavesdropping on a bunch of people on their job. Yeah. And then something goes wrong. They don't feel like characters in a movie. They feel like real people dealing with some horrific shit in space. And, yeah. and, and again, totally preoccupied with shit like, oh, well, how much money am I going to make on this? Huh? Huh? Mm-hmm. And it literally, even when the alien is gestating inside John Hurt, Harry Dean Stanton and Yafet Koto's characters are bickering about money and like being greedy. It is like such a funny angle on the story about how they're like concerned with, you know, this immediate, just everyday situation when they're all going to get annihilated. Well, let's talk about the chest burster scene, which is probably the most famous scene in all of the Alien movies, maybe? Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, um, as as legend goes, um, the cast did not know this was going to happen. 
So their reactions on camera were real. They knew that something was going to happen with, um, I believe it's John Hurt's character. Mm-hmm. They knew that something was going to happen, but they didn't know what. They actually only filmed it once. With more than one camera? Yeah, it had more than one oh, camera okay. going at the same time. Yeah. I was watching the commentary today, and yeah, Veronica Cartwright especially, they were like, you'll get a little blood on you, and she's like, gets oh, like yeah. a huge <laughs> blast of blood in the face. And so, yeah, that reaction of hers is like, is pretty real. She sounds so scared in that moment. Yeah. That's how we feel watching it. We're like, that's pretty horrible. And I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine that that's probably just an ad-libbed, like, real response from her. I'm sure. And I think that's why that scene works so well, is Veronica Cartwright's character was meant to be the one who's really scared and kind of the audience proxy. Usually that would be the protagonist, but Ripley is actually, like, pretty calm and collected. You know what? No one at this point is a protagonist. Right. It's an ensemble. Mm -hmm. And that's what I also love about this movie is that you don't even know that Sigourney Weaver's the hero. No, it's like a, when they keep all. they keep getting like knocked down, knocked down. One person dies, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden we're left with this heroic woman that you don't even know at the beginning that the hero, the protagonist, is going to be a woman. Absolutely, yeah, true. It, it's a total stealth protagonist. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it would be possible now. Sometimes they try and play with you know like a scream is like oh Drew Barrymore is in the movie and then we're gonna kill her, but this isn't that. Like no one is really the star of this movie, and it is it really is an ensemble, and I feel like it really feels like being at work. They know about each other what they need to know to do their jobs but there's no baggage like oh my daughter back home you know like none of that is brought into it it's just kind of like this very functional relationships with people at work and that really does set them all up as equals in a way and there's no sense to the order of who dies in this and it makes it feel scarier I think because you're not like oh well first it'll be the slutty girl and then it'll be the black guy or anything like that it's like no one deserves to die because you feel like you're one of the people on this spaceship I think the fact that these characters weren't developed and mostly just had names and they had roles to play but then Dan O'Bannon didn't like specifically think oh I want the final girl in the movie the way that a lot of movies built around that. Ripley's one of the most famous final girls, if not the most famous final girl, like, ever. But it's interesting that that was kind of incidental, that she could have been played by a man. Mm-hmm. Did you see that movie Green Room? I yeah. read the script, yeah. and there there's a, a female in the band played by Aaliyah Shawkat, mm-hmm. but I read the script, and it was all men. Hmm. And But there's nothing about it that's, like, men or women. Right. But they cast her, and I loved that character because there's nothing about her being a woman mm-hmm. brought up in that movie because she was written to be a guy. So it's like, I almost wish that, like, a lot more scripts were written to be unisex. Like, it could be a guy or a girl. I feel like that's when female characters can shine because the screenwriter doesn't load them with, oh, well, I have to deal with women issues and this about being a woman or this because women are just like men. And I feel like a lot of time people don't get that. They feel like, oh, I have to add all this extra stuff because it's a woman. And also they would often limit what the woman can do right. to just mm-hmm. woman-related yeah, things. Yeah, I agree on yeah. that too. And I think that's why in that movie, I liked that there's nothing about her being a woman that tied her down or exactly. limited her. And I feel the same way with Ripley is that I think that if they set out, and maybe not because he's a good screenwriter, but mm-hmm. like maybe if he'd set out to, set, to make Ripley a woman from the get-go, it would have been a different movie. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was an accident as well that the last three survivors are a black guy and two women. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that was on purpose, but 
it's very interesting that even before a lot of these horror tropes were solidified, like it was really the 80s where you saw a lot of slasher movies where with the final girl and eventually put into place all the things that Scream would eventually make fun of, but that this movie kind of goes against all those tropes all, like before they were even a thing. It's very interesting that you kind of wonder why more movies didn't look at Alien and say, oh yeah, maybe we should do it this way because it's so effective in this movie and there's so many bad horror movies that followed it where you could just say, maybe if you did it more like Alien, you'd be a little bit better. I like that Ripley isn't the token woman also, that there is another woman and she's like the pilot. Like she has her own thing going on. I just like that it's that nobody feels like a token yeah. in this movie. Yeah, like the black character is not the black character who's yeah. necessarily there for a specific reason. It feels, and even the other woman, like it would have been easy to cast her as like the opposite of Ripley and make her like the slutty one or the stupid or whatever she's going to be. But right. she feels as important as anyone else. Like she's not, she doesn't have any specifically feminine traits either. Yeah. Well, and I think it also hints at a kind of more industry-wide thing, which is that I think the movie's mislearned from alien success. I think they learned that like, oh, well, crazy, scary looking creatures are what's successful or explosions or, you know, the the blow them up stuff and the aliens killing people rather than learning that how they design the actual human characters in the movie plays a gigantic role in how scary the actual creatures and their experiences are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the movie gets mostly, I would say, criticized for the panties in the end. <laughs> uh, I think that's kind of seen as a throwaway, gratuitous, almost, it's not exactly nudity, mm. but a gratuitous underwear shot. But I actually think that it's kind of interesting to look at because if you have a woman in a movie, usually she's seen as a sex object first, and then she might get to like do something interesting and, and like kill a monster or something. And in this movie, Ripley is completely, basically asexual throughout the entire movie. And then at the end, we're kind of reminded like, oh, she's a woman. One of the criticisms of the typical final girl, I took a female action hero class where we looked at alien and aliens a lot and kind of how all these female action heroes are good and then what's problematic about them. A lot of criticisms of the final girl is that she's a loner, she's either overly sexualized or she has no sexuality at all. Someone like Ripley tends to be seen as kind of butch, especially as the series goes on. So. I like that we get reminded that she's a woman and she's still a person, you know, she still has this side to her. She hasn't become toughened. She eventually kind of does become that in the series, but in this one, she's just kind of, it reminds us that she's still an innocent and still a woman. I think an essential element of the Alien franchise is the hibernation and how much that hibernation process always puts you at risk. In the life of Ripley's character, a lot of her compatriots and colleagues are killed when they're in hibernation sleep. I feel like she does build a tougher exterior and is toughened by her experiences. But I feel like that element of stripping down and once again becoming vulnerable is an essential element of Ripley's character and Ripley's life. Absolutely, yeah. The way that I looked at it was that the screenwriter wanted to show this is how vulnerable this person is right now, like this character, not yeah. necessarily man or woman, but like they don't have any equipment on, like they don't have any weaponry. They're literally in their underwear mm -hmm. alone with a cat 
on a spaceship. And and that's the best possible outcome. <laughs> that's winning in this scenario. I think that's like, what Seth wants, is to be alone in his underwear <laughs> with a cat on a spaceship right, for I the just, rest of his life. Oh yeah, that's my five-year plan. <laughs> I didn't even think of it as like a sexual shot at Ripley. It was more like, this is how vulnerable this character is right now, and yet we're putting this person in their underwear with an alien. Let's see if she can pull this off. Yeah, I agree. I think the common misconception about yeah, it is but that I think it that's is incorrect. just a, yeah, like, I think that's a look at her in her panties kind of shot. And it, I think this movie is too smart to want yeah, to do that definitely. in the last yeah. reel. So I kind of have a theory about this movie or kind of about this franchise. Like I said, I think you can see it as a metaphor for everything. But for me, and it goes along with what Seth was saying about making men uncomfortable, is that the movie kind of feels like a metaphor for puberty, where your body is doing something unexpected that you kind of can't control, taking on a life of its own, and suddenly your body becomes capable of creating life, and you aren't quite aware of how that goes. And it can happen even when you don't necessarily plan it. Sex and death have always been very mixed in horror movies, like, and the sexuality of this movie, like everything is very like wet and squishy, and like Seth was saying, a lot of penetrative kind of actions with like the little little mouth coming out of the big mouth and mm-hmm. usually like going to your head or something. And the face become way more vaginal uh, in Aliens. And that was on purpose. James Cameron wanted to make them more vaginal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I feel like, I mean, I don't, I don't know that this was exactly what he had in mind, but it just has this feeling of body horror to me and that you're, the fear of the sexual body, the fear of body parts, which I think can be looked at as like a rape kind of thing. But I think it goes beyond that. Like the metaphor is just kind of any sort of discomfort you have with the physical body. Sex is pretty gross when you think about it. Like a lot of sexual acts are pretty gross. And I think this movie really kind of shoves that in your face. No pun intended. (laughs) Pun a little intended. I know who you are. (laughs) It shoves it in your face and lays its eggs down your throat. The fact that the alien, the way that it comes to life, like I said, it's many steps. It feels very sexual in that it needs all of these things to happen in order to live. It's not just like a, it's hatching out of an egg and then it's there. It doesn't always use humans, does it? Because there weren't humans around for a long time. I think that's a question for Prometheus and <laughs> yeah. Alien Covenant. Okay, so in the overall alien canon, the gist of the alien creature is that this particular creature made by merging that egg baby thing with a human is a perfect weapon. And the Wayland yutani Corporation wants to, like a defense contractor, like a weapons manufacturer, they want to sell copies of this thing. Of course, presuming that they have any ability to control it. No, they don't. Spoiler for the rest of the uh, franchise. Yes. For, for yeah. the record, the only movies I consider in canon are one and two. <laughs> I don't even recognize the other movies as being part of yeah, even but but even the first two movies kind of lay this out. Uh-huh. The last thing that I wanted to bring up about this movie is its view on science. It's interesting. Becky was just at a pro science and facts march. <laughs> yes, pro facts. <laughs> yeah, one of those it. weird people who's like in support of actual yeah. things. Yes, I went to the march for science in LA. And this movie is pretty anti-science, I would say in a way. I totally disagree, but go on. That, or at least, I don't know that the movie is anti-science, but, like, Ripley is very afraid of the androids. 
Oh, yes, the androids. We didn't even talk about... The yeah. real villain of this movie is Mother, the computer, which is another... Like, the fact that that's named Mother is another thing that yeah. made me think that this movie is kind of about puberty and, like, a coming-of-age tale is that you realize that your mother isn't protecting you and she has to kind of stand alone. Well, not just Mother, but um, what's the, the robot's name? Ash, right? Ash. Ash, yeah. So he's also the villain. He's, like, a conduit yeah. for Mother. Yeah, yeah, he's doing her bidding. Yeah. And the fact that they want to take this creature home, they want to study it, the scientists want it for science. And there are a lot of these movies where like the military just wants to kill it and the protagonists are like, let's save it and study it. But in this one, we're not meant to think like, oh, they should they should really like save this and put it away mm-hmm. and study it. We're kind of with Ripley. Let's just kill this thing. Like we don't want to study it. We don't want to learn any more about it. Like, let's just get rid of it. Yeah, so Ash is actually the one who lets John hurt on the ship. Once he's had the face yes. attached, Ripley gives a direct order to not let them on yes, and to quarantine right. them aside. Mm-hmm. And she is eventually told by Ash that Ash is allowed to override her orders for reasons of science. But, of course, it's not really for reasons of science, like I was saying earlier. It's because of the greed of the Weyland-Yutani Corporation. They're not doing it for science. They're doing it because they are building a weapon and are trying to get their product, basically. I disagree that it's a movie that's anti-science. I do agree that it's a movie about what happens when you abuse science toward the purposes of greed and selfishness. Like Jurassic Park. Exactly like Jurassic Park. Chris, you're exactly right about the computer on the Nostromo called Mother, that's also an appropriation and a hijacking of the means of life and the creation of life and the respect for life Mm -hmm. being abused for greed and selfishness. It's not really an anti-science thing. It's more, again, like a kind of anti-corporate thing to me. I don't think it's anti-science in the way of like science... (laughs) doesn't exist. Facts aren't facts. It's not that. It's that in this whole franchise, when you go out there and explore, you're going to get killed. The alien is very biological and it's very smart about science in that way. But I think that the movie is very skeptical and the whole series is very skeptical about trying to look into science too much or maybe trying to corporatize science. I I think it's about trying to control science and especially reproductive science. But Um, I think it's like John Hurt falls into the egg layer. It happens because a human penetrates the safe womb of the eggs. Yeah, I just think that the kind of message of this particular movie is like don't study it don't go looking for it <laughs> like we don't even want to know what's out there it's just let's keep to ourselves and stay it's like curiosity safe. killed the cat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. although the cat does live in this the movie. cat does i just want to say before we move on how much i loved the reveal that ash is a robot mm-hmm. um especially if you have no idea i just thought it was great and the whole design of like substance being inside of robots that's uh, still very disturbing it's It's really it's weird for a movie that has so much weird gore how like almost the kind of cleanest type of gore is really the one of the most affecting moments of it yeah i actually i forgot to mention this in the part where we were talking about our childhood but i think my first encounter with the xenomorph was (laughs) (laughs) seeing aliens on tv when i was somewhat young you know they often cut the gore out because it was probably on tbs but that scene it's the second one but where bishop is being like torn apart and spewing that white stuff out of his mouth like i was very confused because i didn't know that he was supposed to be a robot and i was like is that what people is that what happens to people when they're being torn apart (laughs) and i was like why (laughs) why is this on tv and I, i like it was just like it was a very disturbing image to me even out of context just having this like yeah 
And that again is a very sexual kind of just like gross. Oh, that's a total bukkake moment. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Kind of an opposite of a bukkake. Another potential (laughs) title for this episode. On that note, let's move on to Aliens. Aliens came out in 1986. So how many years after? Seven years? Yes. Seven years after. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 1986. The box office was 85 million domestic, 131 million worldwide. Big ol' hit. Um, It was actually nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Music, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction slash Set Direction, and Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver, which is probably maybe the first and last time a woman was nominated for Best Actress in an action movie. It was the first time a woman was nominated for Best Actress for a horror, sci-fi, or action movie. Wow. And it was one of the last times. uh, Sandra Bullock in Gravity. Gravity, okay. So it took between 1986 and 2013, 14, I forget which one. And I really think that she deserved that nomination. I think she's fantastic in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she's absolutely, like, and she's asked to do a lot more and have a much wider range. Yeah, and it won two awards for sound effects, editing, and visual effects. Yeah, I wanted to mention the first Alien won one Oscar for visual effects as well and was nominated for art direction, but lost to all that jazz. And as we get into Aliens, I kind of wanted to talk about the critical response to the first Alien because there might be a reason why the movie turned a little bit away from horror and went into a more action-oriented thing. So I wanted to read what Pauline Kael said about the (laughs) original Alien movie. Mm -hmm. She says, uh, It would be convincing to say that there's no hope for movies, that audiences have been so corrupted by television and have become so jaded that all they want are noisy thrills and dumb jokes and images that move along in an undemanding way so they can sit and react to the simplest motor level. And there's plenty of evidence, such as the success of Alien, this haunted house with gorilla picture set in outer space. It reached out, grabbed you, and squeezed your stomach. It was more gripping than entertaining, but a lot of people didn't mind. They thought it was terrific because at least they'd felt something. They'd been brutalized. And I find that interesting because that's how I would criticize a lot of horror movies that come out now, and I would point to Alien as the the antidote to that that's actually Mm -hmm. much better. At the time, there were a lot of critics that felt the same way, that the movie was just too much, too gory, and that that was the main thing that they took away from it was just that kind of brutal feeling. Some things are just ahead of their time. Yeah. It takes a long time for people to catch up with how impressive that movie was. Yeah, Ebert didn't particularly like the movie. I, neither Siskel nor Ebert did. And then eventually it ended up in his great movies book. Mm-hmm. So he reconsidered it. I'm sure a lot of critics did. But it's interesting that they missed all that gender. I guess it's hard to see that in the moment that you're living in because you're so used to what gender is around you. It, it, it takes a while sometimes to see how these things are actually being portrayed. Well, and it takes longer for the culture to study itself than it does for culture to be produced. So it, it took time for that kind of thing to even come up for analysis in cultural circles. So what was the critical reception to Aliens like compared to Alien? So I have Ebert's review, which is interesting. He says, the movie's so intense that it creates a problem for me as a reviewer. Do I praise its craftsmanship or do I tell you it left me feeling wrung out and unhappy? It has been a week since I saw it, so the emotions have faded a little, leaving me with an appreciation of the movie's technical qualities. But when I walked out of the theater, there were knots in my stomach from the film's roller coaster ride of violence. This is not the kind of movie where it means anything to say you enjoyed it. Sorry, Ebert, love ya, but I completely disagree. Well, he gave it three and a half stars, though, even despite that review. But, okay, so... I saw Aliens at Arclight, which is a great theater here in L.A. They sometimes show older movies 
Arclight presents. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I went with my husband. I had maybe seen Aliens like twice before on DVD. And I was like, let's see it in the movie theater. And I had never been happier in my life. <laughs> like it was so much fun. It was like the definition of like what a movie should and could be. And like the audience was into it. And I could hear people like gasping and people were cheering at, you know, certain lines that I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. And at the end, I just felt like pumped. I was just like, yeah, movies. <laughs> I was just like, and I, I could just tell everyone in the movie theater was happy and like thought it was like an amazing, kick-ass, awesome experience. Isn't it interesting how that like kind of just points out how tastes change? There are movies that come out now where I would have this kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. Like that's just senseless violence. Almost any Marvel movie. Yeah. Almost any like Vin Diesel movie. Those torture yeah. porn movies, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like Seth was saying is that they took the wrong lesson from it. It's like, oh, people like the chest bursting scene. So why not give them a whole movie of the chest bursting scene? But it's interesting that to the people living back then, some of them who mm-hmm. are thoughtful critics, to them, this was just senseless violence. And now that's the kind of optimal level of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Whereas before it was this horrible thing for some people. And I totally recommend seeing these movies in a theater because it is awesome. So Aliens was directed by James Cameron, and at that time, he had only completed two movies previous to Aliens. That was Piranha something or other. Piranha 2, The Spawning. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And The Terminator. Um, The Terminator and Aliens. (laughs) The Terminator. I know, The Terminator. Um, Like the Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) I'm calling it Terminator. I don't care. (laughs) He was developing Terminator around the same time they were trying to find a writer-director for Aliens. Xenomorph, second encounter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they read his script for The Terminator and really liked it, but he was, you know, going to do Terminator before Aliens, and then I keep calling it The Terminator. It is which the I, Terminator. I know, but I hate it. <laughs> you uh, hear that, James Cameron? Production for it kept getting pushed back because of a conflict with Schwarzenegger, so he had time to write a proper script for Aliens, and he pitched it, and they loved it, so they let him go off and do The Terminator before he could start work um, for Aliens. The Aliens? The Aliens. aliens. <laughs> the, the Aliens too. Again, it was a huge hit. It's more action than horror. Definitely. I think it definitely feels more like an action movie with horrific elements than a horror movie. But there is still some horror in there. And there's some of my favorite shots in this movie are some of the most ominous, creepiest, disturbing things I've ever seen in a movie. So I still feel like there is a horror element to Aliens, even though most people just think of it like an action movie with guns. So let's just get to it. What were your thoughts about Aliens when you first saw it? And what did you think this time? I saw both Alien and Aliens a lot of times growing up. And I always viewed Aliens as much more of just a straight up action flick. The last two times around watching it, though, I did pick up on more of the horror elements. I did realize how many of the things that I just kind of thought of as my favorite Aliens moments from the whole series are from this movie. And I also really came to see how it's not glorifying the military because that's kind of how I used to Hmm. perceive it. Hmm. But it really is about the pointlessness of military technology, the pointlessness of innovating the newest whiz-bang bombs and missiles and rockets, the pointlessness of machismo and ego in the face of this perfect killing machine. It's also a thing just kind of fitting it into James Cameron's canon. The anti-war kind of mindset set is a thing that runs through a lot of James Cameron's work. 
And so is yeah. kind of the anti-corporate mindset. And, and mm-hmm. it's very much in Aliens where the whole mythology of the overall series is teased out. Because they're going back to this planet and Ripley is waking up 50 years later yeah. and discovering that not only is her daughter now dead, but they've already established a colony and sent dozens of families to the planet where the xenomorph eggs live. It's basically a story of a corporation sending out victims to colonize this place and become their basically their human incubators to grow these weapons. This reminds me a lot of Jaws with the corporation putting people's lives at risk just for money. I think even more like of Jurassic Park and something like yeah. that too, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I always liked this movie. I probably saw the movies fairly close together when I actually first saw them. I knew that James Cameron had done one and I was interested in that because I was interested in James Cameron movies at the time. And I think I always admired the first movie, but this is the one I would probably put on a lot more because it's just Mm -hmm. a more fun movie to watch and it definitely moves faster than the first one does. So that's what I thought then. And I've seen both of these movies several times since I first saw them. I owned both of these on Blu-ray already. I had seen them a year or two ago and I've always thought they both hold up perfectly. And it's interesting that this feels like a real continuation of Alien. It really does, even though it's separated by like 50 years. Yeah, they feel like they're in the same world, but the tone is a little weird. I mean, a little different from movie to movie, but that makes sense. It's 50 years in the future, so some things are going to be different in in Ripley's world. It's interesting that a sequel can be a different genre. I would definitely classify this as action and the first one as sci-fi horror. And that doesn't, that almost never happens. I can't remember any other movie that's ever come out. The third one should have been a romantic comedy. (laughs) I definitely would compare the disorientation induced by learning the circumstances of aliens, learning, oh, her daughter is dead. Oh, it's 50 years later. Like, oh, androids are totally different now. Like, learning all these things, that disorientation serves the story. Mm -hmm. I think this movie is amazing. I think it's so much fun to watch. It's so I, scary. I do want to shout so out thrilling. Bill Paxton specifically. Yeah, Bill Paxton. Because he is so great in this. Um, a little bit of, tr- of uh, Paxton facts. Pax facts. <laughs> he improvised most of his lines, including, game over, man, game over. Which is like one of the most iconic lines in all of cinema history. I would like to point out, stop your grinning and drop your linen. That's, <laughs> that's my a pretty, favorite. No, that's a pretty great one, too. I, uh, yeah. He's I just, that yeah, one. he's great in this movie. He's not like the main character, but he he's just a scene stealer. Every scene he's in, I'm just like, Absolutely. more please, more Paxton. His <laughs> face he makes when the android is doing the knife game on him oh, yeah. is the it's funniest so face ever it's so great <laughs> um and trivia for that the knife trick scene was not in the original shooting script they added bill paxton's hand to the knife trick on set and they didn't tell him that was going to happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah i listened to the recording of the aliens cast's appearance at comic-con last year i guess it was the 30th anniversary and Bill Paxton was still alive, so he was there, Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting. He talked a little bit about that hand scene and how scary it was, that he was actually (laughs) doing that. It seems like they were filming it slow and just sped up. They didn't, though. What? No? No. Um, that's they, they were talking about that. They actually did do that. They did They did one where it was filmed at normal speed and one where it was filmed at a slower speed so that they could then speed it up. But that one looked too weird. So the one that they actually used is the one that's just, it's not sped up at all. No, it has to be sped up. Nope. It looks a little sped up. That's well, they're wrong. Straight I from swear, the horse's mouth. I swear it looks a little sped up. 
I mean, whatever. I still wouldn't want a knife near anywhere near my hand, so. Well, another thing I wanted to highlight about the movie is the way that it deepens Ripley's character. Mm-hmm. Although it turns out that her daughter, who we never get to meet in the course of these films, is dead, we do get to meet another tiny person character named Newt. So Seth and Chris, which version did you watch? The director's cut or the theatrical cut? I watched the director's cut. I, I also watched the director's cut. So I did too, and I think that is the better cut of the movie. And When I saw it in theaters, it was a theatrical version. So I, now I've seen both, and I know that there's a difference between uh, the two. And one of the things that is not in the theatrical version, which is the first one that was shown to audiences, is that you don't learn anything about her daughter that died. Like, that scene is not in the movie. And I was shocked because I kept waiting for it in in Aliens when I was seeing it in the theater, and it just passed by, and I was like, wait a minute, I could have sworn she had a daughter that was dead, and you saw a picture of her daughter as, like, an old lady. And that's not in the theatrical cut. And I feel like it added so much to her character, and even though that worked in the first one of not knowing too much about Ripley or anyone else, I felt like you needed that, because when she meets this young girl in the sequel, like, you get it that she, this mothering instinct kicks in, and she's not replacing her daughter, but she's, like, protecting this person because she couldn't be a mother to her own child. The studio note that would come down would likely have been, oh, we get that information that Ripley feels like a mother to this child from how she's acting in the movie. So the plot in the present is already telling us that she's got this mothering instinct and she's taking care of this girl. But I totally agree with you Mm -hmm. that like knowing that she literally had a daughter and knowing that she has just learned that that daughter is dead really deepens the emotional impact of her meeting Newt and being able to take care of her and being able to provide for her and kind of mourn in that sense through protecting this child and keeping it alive. Yeah, I don't think that you necessarily miss that if the scene isn't there. But I think it does add a really interesting layer. Because, I mean, the relationship between Ripley and Newt works either way. It has the same function, even if you don't know that she's literally a surrogate daughter for her own daughter. And the Ripley character has already been through a big fucking alien attack. So we're (laughs) already, like, feel for her in this movie. But I think the way that the director's cut lays it out is that scene comes, like, I think... Pretty much around the same time, they're showing the faces of the crew from the first movie. And it just reminds you of, like, all of the losses there. And then you learn that her daughter has also died. And that's just such an interesting story to feel that you have, like, literally outlived your daughter who... But who also grew up to be an older woman than you are. Like, that's yeah. not a story that you hear every day. <laughs> and obviously so. isn't possible today. So it's it's just interesting to think of, like, what that would do to your mindset. She's grieving a daughter that she left at, I think, 11 years old or something. Something like that, yeah. And yet, like, the daughter lived a full life. The daughter was 66 when she died. So you're not really mourning... Like, she didn't die too early, per se. Yeah, she lived a full life without her mom. Yeah, and that's just a really powerful emotional story. You could do a whole movie that basically just focuses on that kind of a plot. Yeah, and that's why I like it. I think she gives a really great performance when she learns of of that, and that's something I hadn't seen before in a movie. It was just really interesting. She's looking at this picture of an old woman. That's her daughter. And trivia, that's uh, Sigourney Weaver's mom in the picture. Um, Elizabeth Inglis. Um, it's just really interesting and it, you know, makes sense with the plot and character. I just couldn't believe that they would, uh, they would have cut that out. Mm-hmm. I think there's an argument to be made that making Ripley a maternal figure in this movie kind of undercuts the feminism of the series. I don't necessarily agree with that fact, but I think if you look at it, the first one 
bucks all these traditions of what a woman does in a movie like this. Usually she's like screaming and running and afraid and Ripley is really very cool and confident. And then in this movie she's thrust into a very like feminine role where she's the mother to this child. And so in a way that kind of, if this was a male in this movie, like this, I mean obviously it wasn't written <laughs> with no genders, but you know that this was written as a woman, this character. Mm -hmm. It would be a different kind of thing if it was a guy. Sure, but I don't I don't in any way see it as detracting from her femininity. If anything, I think it firmly establishes her womanhood in the context of still being a warrior. I see her as like an Athena-like figure where she's like a warrior goddess. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that she has to face the alien queen in this is showing that as symbols, they're equally powerful mm -hmm. forces pitted against each other. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that kind of the main characters of this movie are Ripley, Newt, and the alien queen. Mm -hmm. All of them are women. And Ripley and the alien queen have the exact same goal as they want to protect their children, mm -hmm. basically. It's funny because it kind of does hint at another thread that runs through a lot of James Cameron's movies of, like, warrior queens, like Linda Hamilton's character in the Terminator franchise. I don't think it detracts from her womanhood, and I also don't think it detracts from her ferocity as someone who's fighting. Yeah, it's interesting that like her, she cuts her hair a little shorter in this movie. In at least the first three movies, she keeps getting a little bit more butch in each yeah. one. <laughs> it's it's interesting that that is offset with this very feminine role. So she's a very tough character in this movie. She's definitely not weak in any way. I mean, especially when she gets into the loader in the end, and she's just like kicking ass. Like it's definitely not a weak role, but it's interesting that this very very feminine story of motherhood is juxtaposed with a otherwise pretty masculine movie about military corporate greed and just a horror action movie. I think it's interesting because the first movie, you know, in the screenplay, it was basically, you know, gender's not an issue. Everyone's on the same footing. It's unisex. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. And in the second one, I felt like Cameron wanted to use her femininity and her, you know, maternal or, you know, woman prowess in the character and in the story. And it, I he, think that's he didn't, exactly right. He didn't want you to not think not think of her gender he wanted he wanted that's exactly right he wanted to put her on you know this pedestal being like this is a strong powerful woman this is the alien queen who is a strong powerful female creature and Jeanette Goldstein who plays Private Vasquez mm -hmm. is another woman in the movie that you're supposed to see her as a woman but like a tough strong woman like you're not supposed right. to just see her as as one of the boys um, like he wants you to pay attention to their gender in this movie, but you're supposed to see them as powerful, which I think is a really interesting statement, too. And I think that I like these movies because I can see one side of Ripley where, you know, her being a woman isn't an issue. And I can see the other side where her being a woman is like what makes her powerful. I totally agree with that and totally agree with that and very rare that even though both of the movies take very different approaches and draw clear or very kind of vague lines around the gender politics, that neither of those are used as ways to weaken her as a character. She is super strong, but in the second one, the gender politics are drawn in a just a more overt way mm -hmm. that does give her the opportunity to, again, like, rise to a position of strength. And, and she remains powerful regardless of how the politics of it are drawn. Both this and the first movie have two kind of female characters who are Ripley, and then in the first one there's Lambert, in this one there's Vasquez. Lambert is a little bit more traditionally feminine than Ripley, and that she's a little more afraid and a little less like 
competent in Mm -hmm. this horror scenario. Whereas Vasquez goes the other way and is kind of someone you would think of as like a real like badass action hero. Muscles and she's aggressive. Yeah. Like if you just looked at the two of them, you'd be like, oh, Vasquez would probably win in a fight. Although I'm not so sure. Well, not the one with Lamb in her name. No. No. no, not a fighter, no. By the way, Jeanette Goldstein, who played Vasquez, she is not Hispanic. Oh, really? She is a white woman. <sighs> they made her skin darker with makeup. They, she dyed her hair brown and wore black contact lenses. Isn't that amazing? Whoa. Do you know who she is? She was John Connor's guardian in T2. Oh, now I can totally see it because I know exactly wow. what that woman she's looks the, like. She's the one where when the uh, the T one yeah. T one thousand like pretends to be her and like and the sword fingers the sword yeah. hand yeah isn't that crazy? That's crazy. I do not think that would happen now. <laughs> yeah, no. um, and she played a Hispanic pretty well because I had no idea that she wasn't like a Vasquez. <laughs> like that is insane that they even did that. They would even cast a woman. That is who wasn't. really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I was thinking of this movie, I just, I realized that James Cameron does not get enough credit as a really feminist filmmaker. And I was thinking he about doesn't? It. I honestly think he does. Does he not? I mean, I think people are kind of aware of it, but every single one of his movies has a smart, interesting female character yeah. who is as capable or more capable than the male characters Oh in yeah, the movie. he's really good at that. Yeah, I just I feel like I don't hear that about him and his it's movies. It's true. I, I do feel like it's kind of taken. I feel like it's kind of taken for granted, especially on the level and scale of the blockbuster ass films that he makes. No one who makes movies that big is doing them from that perspective, where they're mm-hmm. like, "Let me explicitly lay out a gender politics of the main characters in this that will only make the women stronger and often will make the male characters weaker or more vulnerable to attack or destruction." Yeah, like Mad Max Fury Road is obviously Furiosa is right. I mean, but you can count on one hand the, the movies that exactly. besides James Cameron that do that. Right. Exactly. I mean, the obvious equivalent to James Cameron as Michael Bay. He's like what <laughs> James Cameron would basically be without, well, Thought. some talent. With a major head injury. And without any sort of interest in female characters other than as like window dressing. Right. I know that like Ripley and Linda Hamilton in the Terminator series both get called out a lot as really important feminist mm-hmm. icons and great characters as well. But I mean, if you look at Titanic, Kate Winslet's character is as interesting as Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, she's very capable. She, like, learns to stand up for herself and help save people. Not her lover, but whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Not her fault. Not her fault. Look, she's not a furniture expert, okay? She doesn't know how many people are gonna fit. In the the abyss, the the two scientists are pretty much on equal footing. True lies, like, the joke is sort of that the wife is a little bit nutty and crazy, but she ends up, like, kind of kicking ass in the end of the movie, and she's a well-developed character. Yeah. And even, I guess, Avatar, you know, I mean, I don't think that that's like a paragon of character development in general, but there are still interesting women characters. The nicest thing I can say is that she's a very strong blue woman. (laughs) (laughs) And Sigourney Weaver's in that too. And she's She's a very strong blue woman, and that's good for her. And James Cameron has made two of the three biggest movies ever made, and yet people are not really learning their lesson from him about 
making women interesting in these kinds of movies. Again, it's, and I'm sure this is a point I will make many more times in the course of the When We Were Young podcast, but so many times when something succeeds on a huge level, the suits, the industry side of things always learns the wrong lessons from them. Mm -hmm. Just like the Wyland Corporation in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, the Wyland Yutani, they just learn the wrong lesson every time. So this movie, I would like to mention, passes the Bechdel test Yay. with flying colors. Even the line, get away from her, you bitch, is technically passing the Bechdel test. <laughs> Wait, are you considering the alien queen to be another female yes, that she is talking to? She's a strong female. <laughs> They're having a conversation Becky. about something that is not a man. Besides not the alien, who else is she talking to? Just Does Newt, Newt count? Yeah. Okay. Because it doesn't have to be a woman. It has to be just another female character with a name. Newt is not a girl, not yet a woman. Okay, do we like Newt? She's a little bit helpless. Mostly. I guess we're not going to be leaving now, right? I'm sorry, Newt. You don't have to be sorry. It wasn't your fault. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back. Because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. I mean, she's okay. She's kind of iconic now, (laughs) I think, because there's so much care given to Ripley not being a typical victim woman. I know she's a child, but it's still, she just stands there and, like, waits to die every time an alien comes. No, that's not true at all. It is so true. No, it's not true. She goes and hides in a little corridor or hides in a little air duct. I don't think she's defenseless. I think it is meaningful that she is the one person who survived from that colony. That's true. I think it's I think it again is a line of connection between her and Ripley. They may not be the fiercest people under any other circumstances, but in this particular circumstance when this godless killing machine came, they were the ones who survive. That's true. I think that's a good point. I don't know if you ran across this but James Cameron basically based this on a story he had already written. Oh, no, I didn't. Called Mother. Oh, wow. I don't know exactly what that story was about, but it was something very similar to this of like a woman like taking on a surrogate daughter and fighting probably wasn't the same alien queen, but some sort of alien queen, I imagine. It's so interesting because like, again, rewatching them this time around, like to me, the that storyline resonates so much. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird to me because I do think it is seen as like a military shoot 'em up movie. And watching it this time around, it just so does not feel like that. I love the line, they can bill me. That's a really <laughs> good line of Ripley's of just when they're complaining that she's destroying an expensive space yeah, station. They can bill me. I also thought Paul Reiser's character was kind of funny, just as the personification of that weaselly corporate mentality. Absolutely. Yeah, um, he's great. And how, like, even he eventually comes to see that Ripley is exactly right and that his company has kind of created and fomented and now is unleashing something it has no way of controlling. Yeah, I think that this movie, even though it is an action movie, is very smart to keep this the scale pretty small. I mean, all of the Alien movies, at least the first four, they're all contained. And I think that's a really important element for these movies, like... You could imagine a version of it that is not contained, like that could be a movie, but it it was smart to keep it on that scale where even though there's a lot more aliens and it's a bigger scale like that, it's still the same basic idea of people being picked off in this contained 
area one by one. And it's funny also because, like, even in the pursuit of killing the alien, even in that kind of, in terms of the story, those biggest moments of killing the alien, it still requires total claustrophobia, chasing it down corridors and into an airlock. And in Aliens, it requires Ripley getting into this mechanical suit thing that's ultimately her manually controlling it and kind of, mm-hmm. uh, it's almost like a woman-to-woman fight, literally. Yeah. God, but that's so amazing. Best bitch that fight scene, ever. <laughs> that scene is still so absolutely amazing. When I saw it in the theater, when she says, get away from her, you bitch, the theater erupted into applause and woos. Yeah. It's just so good. It's so good, and it's also so tensely plotted when it's literally down to the point where she's pulled it down into the airlock, and like she now has to kind of un- free herself from that suit and kind of run up, and even that's just so claustrophobic, but I just think it's kind of funny, because it's a movie whose symbolism is so much about evacuating and giving birth to things, and ultimately, what's needed to Hmm. kill the alien is always having the ship basically expel it and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of birth it into space. God, I love that scene so much. I, I love it so much, there's too. No, it, I don't think there's any music playing. You just hear the, the sounds of the machine and the sounds of the alien. Yes. Um, it's just such yeah. good sound design. Um, another scene that I love in that movie so much is the reveal of the alien queen. Mm-hmm. It starts out very small where you are like you see an egg and then you see another egg dripping out of mm-hmm. this thing and then you slowly look up and up and up and then the camera has to like move back and go up and then you see the size of this alien queen and just that camera movement and how they staged it was just like the most like horrific like oh my god oh yeah <laughs> like, perfect and, like, sequel the, moment and the of... magnitude of it as a practical effect is fucking staggering yeah. but it so works totally i love that shot yeah i mean i think this is the best i mean we already said it was the best designed creature but it's the coolest alien that's ever been designed i mean you see like close encounters or i mean et is kind of original looking but it doesn't it's hold not a candle like this. Yeah. this i mean this is like a real monster i mean it, it's terrifying and this movie obviously had a bigger budget but he still kind of learned the lesson of the first movie is that less is more and what you don't see is often scarier so you get some good shots of the alien but there's a lot of suggestion of what's happening too that allows you to fill in the details on your own newt's weird accent was because she was an american living in england I was wondering, I was almost mentioning that. She had a weird accent because of that. Mostly. <laughs> Didn't she also do some commercials for cereal? Oh, that I don't know. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> this was her only movie. They mostly come out for breakfast. Mostly. Mostly. We are chatting about Carrie Hen. <laughs> I looked at her Twitter, and she still tweets about Alien, like, every single day. <laughs> Good it's amazing. for her. <laughs> She's now a teacher, uh, she said, because she was at the Comic-Con panel, too. At a school for aliens. I believe it is not. But she said that at parent-teacher conferences, the dads always come, even though they don't usually come, <laughs> because they're all big Aliens fans. Oh, good. Oh, that's good. That's so she good seems like her. a jolly, fun girl. So She's a good time gal. <laughs> yeah, get a little newt in your life. So Indeed. it sounds like we really like these movies. Yeah. <laughs> now to go to movies we don't like. <laughs> <laughs> that transition yourself. was smooth as silk <laughs> and nope. loose as linen. Now for shit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the other alien movies. When we were dumb. <laughs> so, yeah, Aliens came out in 1986. It was not until 1992 that the Alien 3 came out. So 
just as between the first and second one, there was a pretty big delay. There was also in the in the second to third. Um, so moving out of the Reagan era, Bill Clinton was now president uh, when Alien 3 came out. Criss Cross's Jump was at the top of the music charts. <laughs> 60 Minutes was the most popular TV show. Oh, man. And this movie was released on May 22nd, 1992, the same day as Johnny Carson's final Tonight Show. Wow. You know. <laughs> Jay Leno came and laid eggs down his throat. <laughs> the budget of this one was approximately $18 million. It made $131 million worldwide. Uh, $85 was, of that was in the U- U.S. And it got decent reviews, actually. Um, They're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, please tell us, don't tell us yet. All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> Becky uh, liked it. Keep going, Chris. Entertainment Weekly, Owen Gleiberman, gave it an A-. minus. <sighs> Alien 3 is a grimly seductive end-of-the-world thriller with pop-tragic overtones that build in resonance as the movie goes on. The Toronto Globe and Mail was less a fan. In the final frames and the final analysis, Alien gets the worst of both worlds. It's boring and it's messy. The title may be cubed, but the movie looks awfully square. That is because the title Alien 3 was styled as Alien Cubed, which doesn't doesn't make make any sense. That would be alien times alien times alien, which is not the case because there's only one alien in this movie, right? It's not like Alienception. No. (laughs) Guys, this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And I had never seen it before a few weeks ago. It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Becky, let's be fair. You started saying that exact phrase like a minute into this movie. Oh, yeah. You determined that it was the worst thing you'd ever seen like immediately and nothing else could possibly change that. (laughs) No, if it got better, I would have taken it back, but it never did. And not once it got better. It was it was such a slog. I hated every second of this movie. Hated it. She did. I have the claw marks yes, to prove I, it. We, we all we watched, watched it together. We watched we three did. and four together, and I also hated four, spoiler. But three was a particularly bad. It's not just that it was a bad movie, although it was. <laughs> it was because one and two are great, and one and two have great characters, and they're different in their own ways, but still part of the same universe and reality. It felt like they just went bonkers with three and beyond. It was like somebody translating something in English to Spanish to Italian and then back to English. Yeah, like, I was going to say like <laughs> it's uh, rewatching Alien 3, it almost seems like it was a it almost seems like it was a movie that got filmed in another language and had to be dubbed and edited into an English language film. Um they take so much time and yet I feel never firmly established where the fuck they are, what's actually happening. Like, they don't establish the rules of the world in any way that ever grounds the characters in them and ever grounds Ripley in them. The premise of the movie is that it's, like, set in a prison colony. A prison world, a yeah. Prison a whole world, planet that is basically a Which prison. is already, like, so far beyond what the reality of Alien and Aliens was. Like, this well, is, but like... Well, they, but they could have grounded it in that in, in a somewhat believable way, but the framing that they do is that these prisoners are, like, led by, like, a monk, so there's this monastery element to the community. It, it's a jumble, exactly like you said. It's such a clusterfuck that it doesn't feel like any one world that Ripley is trying to navigate. And I feel like part of what makes her such an iconic character is that these the circumstances that she faces are so concrete and so right there, and that's just not the case in this movie. So it's kind of this weird, flowy, um, 
almost dreamlike, but in, in a negative way where it just takes all the suspense out of it. Like the aliens look bad in it. I mean, it's like the beginning of CGI and the, the CGI looks, looks bad. fucking terrible. Like, I, okay, one compliment is that she still looks badass with a buzz cut. Yeah, I love her hair. In so, this movie. I, yeah. Fine. That's, that's fine. Best she, performance. she can have a buzz Ripley cut. getting even butcher. <laughs> like, that's totally fine. But everything else was just like, that was your choice. It felt like it was its own movie. And then they like just brought in Ripley and, and a xenomorph instead of a regular alien into this world. Like, it doesn't feel a part of whatever we saw before. And it wasn't. Ah. I will tell you some history uh, about this movie. Um, the original, it went through a bunch of different writers. And you can actually find out a lot of the subplots of the various drafts of this movie. But originally, um, it began with uh, Hicks still being in character. Hicks was Michael Bean in this in Aliens. The android. No. Oh, wait. Oh, no. The, Hicks the, was... He was injured, but alive. Yeah, he was a human. And they had a kind of a nice like thing yeah. going. And it was he was a character that you wanted to see survive. And Newt went to her grandparents' house on Earth. Uh, like I don't think she was in the movie, but she w- wasn't killed off. I mean, that's one of the worst things about this oh, movie yeah. is that you go through the journey of aliens only to have everything that that movie was about just ripped away. Basically from the first frame of the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, is tragic. So it gets... I can see a version of that being purposeful where it's saying, I mean, this movie is very, very bleak, and I think that that was intentional in a way, in that the fact that Ripley went through all that, and now it was for nothing, and she is now, like, the Ripley in this movie is very jaded, and I think that's what doesn't work about this movie, is that she doesn't want to survive, necessarily, and we don't care about any of the other characters, and she doesn't really care about them either. It's just like everyone's there to be picked off, and you don't. There's no stakes at all, really. It's not that uh, Newt dies. Let's just say she was a character in the third one, and then like halfway through that movie, she dies or something happens. But it's that it's immediate. It's immediately after what we saw in Aliens. The first thing that happens is Newt dies, and so that's why it feels. Awful. Like, there's no more for that. Well, and it's not even Newt dies. It's Newt is already horrifically dead. You know? So it's like, there's no experience of that. There's no experience of Ripley having that experience. Yeah. It's just, it's the most undramatic way to portray that. There's no more story that involved uh, Ripley and Newt that developed their relationship or made stakes or anything. It just starts off with Newt's dead. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what feels like such a, like, are you kidding me? Like... It, it's not that she d- died at all. It's that she dies immediately. And so it it's seems, like, why did we just watch that whole thing? It just like, seems like a fuck you to the audience, Yeah, it basically. does. It, mm-hmm. Like, it really, really does. Yeah, so one of the writers uh, who was influential on this movie was named Vincent Ward. Uh, his idea for Alien 3 was <laughs> banished monks living on a planet together as if it was the Middle Ages believing that the alien is the second coming of the Black Plague. Um, And the alien can also camouflage itself and, like, kind of blend in with anything. So there's, like, a scene in a field of corn where the alien was, like, disguising itself as part of the field of corn. (laughs) I just want to see the shot where the alien is covered in (laughs) corn cobs. Yeah. (laughs) It just, like, walks out from a field. And on this planet, wood was the only material. So everything was wood. And everyone died. And Would you not? 
So, I mean, <laughs> a lot of times you hear what a bad movie was going to be and you're like, wow, I really wish they had made it that way. I mean, I kind of do wish that they had made it that way because it would have at least been bonkers. They kind of did. It's kind of monk, like, jailed. But, like, like, it's none of the interesting stuff about that. But they all have shaved heads. Yeah. Tony Shalhoub's not anywhere in this. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, there were many more writers. Uh, Sigourney Weaver was paid $5.5 million for this because she was basically had authorship of the Ripley character because the directors were not coming back for the, these movies. So she was the one who really was the continuity. You know, she's the mm-hmm. only character who mm-hmm. keeps appearing in them. And David Fincher was only 27 at this time, and this was his first movie. He directed a lot of music videos, though. Yeah. He had directed stuff before, but he was not someone, like, he didn't have a lot of power. Like, if David Fincher was directing this now, it'd be a different movie. But he was really the hired hand for the producers who had their own vision for this. And they were basically writing it through the production. You know, they didn't, they didn't ever have really a good idea for the movie. I mean, they just kind of went into it and started shooting the movie without really knowing, I think, what they were trying to do. I thought I read somewhere that they didn't even know if Sigourney Weaver was coming back until, like, last second. Yeah. And so they had to rewrite it. Yeah, a lot of the drafts didn't have her in it or had her in a different way. And This is how bad movies become bad movies yeah. like because of this that's like we're going to just start making this movie oh our star can let's just insert her who cares if it makes sense like we got to shoot it and it's so sad too cuz like one of the storylines of it that is the closest to successful to me is the story of Ellen Ripley finding out that she has an alien inside her now mm-hmm. like that she is becoming the vessel for the thing that she's survived by conquering in that now it's it's the the invasion is happening within her and I, like I think in terms of the symbolism that's that's I, I think that's a really fascinating third chapter after uh, the Queen of Humanity <laughs> squaring off against the Queen of the Alien Species and taking that down like I do think that's a really interesting third chapter of a trilogy but it just seems like every wrong choice possible was made in the making of this. been in my life so long I can't remember anything else now do something for me it's easy just just do what you do Yeah, I was saying that the first one kind of feels like a movie that's like a coming of age story in a way of a woman dealing with her physical body changing and like separating from mother. And then the second one is obviously very clearly about motherhood. And that's like another stage in a woman's life. And I feel like this movie is trying to be about mortality. And in this one, Ripley is really accepting loss, accepting death and the inevitability that she's going to die. And I think that could be an interesting story. It's just not particularly well done here like i i think the last scene of this movie might have been a really good scene if the movie before this had been a lot better i still think the last sequence is it's very compelling yeah you know so where she like dives into something i can't remember exactly yeah so it's it's like a there's like an ore smelter or something she like sacrifices herself yeah she sacrifices herself but in the original version when she sacrifices herself an alien bursts out of her chest like right before she's about to hit the lava or but it's it dies too yeah yeah but it's it's a little bit 
over the time. I watch actually watch. Well, I don't want her to suffer at the very last second. Yeah, (laughs) it's just give. She's been through a lot. Give Ripley her piece. Yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting series to look at in terms of trauma as well, because this character has been through so much in the first movie survive something that's unthinkable and you're like okay well at least i survived it and then in the second one she's basically surviving only so that she can get newt to survive that's all she cares about Mm -hmm. and then that then in this one newt is even dead so it's like now there's there's really no hope left for ripley it's like every time like we were joking about is every time ripley wakes up on a spacecraft it's like everyone else better clear out because Mm -hmm. bad things are going to happen and just that sense that she's doomed, I think, is very pervasive in this movie and, again, could have been really interesting. I think the bleakness of this movie isn't necessarily a bad choice. It's just that there's nothing for us to really care about. Like, I, It might have worked to have Ripley be as bleak as she is in this movie if the guys, like the prisoners, were people that we cared about. We care yeah, so again, much about it's like the supporting characters in the other movies. And there's, even when it's not a full-on ensemble movie like the first one is, there's at least enough to play around with where they're kind of dramatically playing off of each other. Like, I feel like it really is kind of two different movies happening in Alien 3. And her presence is almost incidental. Yeah, I do think there's one other interesting thing about this movie in that guys early on in the movie attempt to rape her. Hate that. I hate it. Yeah, I hate that too. Like, I don't hate, oh, you shouldn't rape a woman. I hate <laughs> that it's even in the movie. I hate that it's that it's not subtle and it's not necessary. It's just, I hate it so much. It's such an on-the-nose choice. Yeah. It's, like, different in Aliens. You know, she's talking to the board. You can't go back there or take those people off there. And they're saying, we don't believe you. It's a little bit more subtle, like, you're a woman, we don't believe you, versus I'm going to rape you. Like, it was just so, like, really? I find it interesting because we've been talking about the alien as kind of a metaphor for rape. And so the fact that these men are about to do to her what, has already happened to her. Like, she's already technically, if we're looking at it as that metaphor, been raped because she has this thing inside her. And now... And there's nothing they can do to her that hasn't been done already. Right. But still, it's just like they made every wrong version Yeah, it's not a well-done scene. I think that a a lot of these ideas are interesting, and I could see a version of this kind of story working... Where, like, this movie has some good ideas in it. It's just that they're not particularly executed well. And I think that's all script stuff. Because the movie's directed okay, I guess, for the most part. It's it's his worst movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, but I don't hold it against David Fincher because it's his first movie. And I, yeah, the Well, and also because it was, like, yeah. went through such a rigmarole of different writers and everything. It's it's surprising that that movie ever was made. Like, in my opinion, it, it kind of shouldn't have been. It seemed doomed from the start. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Ripley. <laughs> Um, David Fincher actually hates this movie and refused to participate in the re-release of it when it came out on DVD. There was the special edition that we watched that was even longer. (laughs) So we will now move on to the fourth. Must we? (laughs) Yes. I hated this too. Yes, we must. (laughs) Alien Resurrection was released on November 26, 1997. At the box office, Flubber was number one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Written by previous topic of the podcast, John Hughes. Oh, I thought you were going to say Joss Whedon. <laughs> no. And 
<laughs> Anastasia was number three. Hey. So that was another topic of the podcast. <laughs> Elton John's Candle in the Wind was top of the charts. That was not and will never be a topic of the podcast. I'm just saying it now. Seinfeld was tops in TV. So hey. we really got our 1997 on, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Year of Flubber. So despite its shortcomings, Alien 3 did decently well uh, at the box office. It made $55 million here and $160 million worldwide. So still enough for some juice in the franchise to uh, keep going five years later. Alien Resurrection, released in November 1997, at a budget of $75 million, was not such a big hit. It made only $47.8 million here, though it did make $160 worldwide, so it wasn't a total disaster, but... It definitely meant it was the last chapter of the Alien series for a while. They moved on to Alien vs. Predator, I guess, which was like a kind of a knockoff. It had nothing to do with Ripley or anything like that. And the Xenomorphs went on to work in network comedy. They were on sitcoms for a while. Encounter the Xenomorphs. (laughs) Xenomorphs at home. So, yes, this movie was written by Joss Whedon. <laughs> so, we can't escape him. Yeah. We no, try. we can't. Joss Whedon was apparently behind every single thing that happened Jeez, in man. the 90s. Good and bad. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll start with Becky since she's already told us what she thinks of this movie. It's terrible. Alien 3 is worse. <laughs> There's <Okay>. my review. <laughs> There's like one potentially cool sequence underwater, I guess. I just hate it. I mean, I hate it. I hate every second of it. So, I, Seth? Like, I, so many things about you baffle me. But what? Can you not see why I hate these movies? I don't um, see why you hate this one. I don't see why you hate this one. Really? I, yeah, really? really. I think you just had residual burn-off hatred that you no. have not expunged. I, I, I think Alien 3 put you in such a bad mood that you didn't no, want to watch I think, it anymore. No, I think it's, I still think it's terrible. I hate the plot. I hate the acting. I hate the filmmaking. I hate... I um, so I everything. love so I love Jean Pierre Genet. Um, I love his films Delicatessen and Amelie and City of Lost Children and A Very Long Engagement. And I um, love some of those movies. I love so. like all the movies he's made. Um, I really still I loved this when it came out. I saw it a couple times in the theater. Um, I still enjoy it. I don't think it's nearly as good as the first two, but I do think it's also a kind of different movie. It's it is more of a. Um, kind of sci-fi character drama movie than it is like a horror thriller or an action film. Um, But I do think its action sequences are really cool. I think the underwater sequence where they're uh, thinking they're escaping from the aliens, but really just getting further into alien territory um, is awesome. Uh, And I think the uh, CGI was much more advanced by that time, but also I think they did a lot more practical models of the aliens, so I think it has some of the best alien work in any, in any of the movies. Yeah, the alien looks awesome in this aliens movie. Aliens look awesome in this movie. There's I, like one shot where I was like, okay, that the alien at least looks cool. Oh, there was another thing in Alien 3. It was too bright. Like, everything was lit very brown and bright. Yeah. I watched all these movies on the same TV, sure. and just the way they were filmed, it just made this, the monsters not as scary. I get what you mean. Um, because everything was brown, not not blacks, you know? Sure, I get what you mean. Um, I, I love the alien work in this, um, but I also especially love the casting. It has some of my favorite actors from anything. Ron Perlman, who's in some of Jean-Pierre Genet's movies, is great in this. Winona Ryder is awesome in this. She plays the cyborg in this one, but she has a much more developed personality and is wrestling with very complicated issues of what it means to be a person and what it means to be an individual. And that's really interesting against Ripley, 
who in this movie only exists because she's been cloned. Yeah. And, and is no longer the Ellen Ripley we know and love, obviously. No, she's like a hybrid of the alien queen and... She could play basketball really well. She's just like awesome the alien queen. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I love Winona Ryder's character in this. And then there are also like some fun kind of small roles like Brad Dourif is in it as a really creepy scientist and he's just perfect. I don't think this is quite as weighty. I don't think it kind of wrestles with much deeper questions like the first one does, but I still really enjoyed it. What's inside me? No, there's got to be another way. What if we freeze him? What's in fucking inside me? The parasite! Oh, an element. There's a monster in your chest. These guys hijacked your ship and they sold your cryo tube to this human. And he put an alien inside of you. It's a really nasty one. And in a few hours, it's gonna burst its way through your rib cage and you're gonna die. Any questions? Yeah, I think it's a really fun movie. I mean, it's fun to watch it now and kind of look at it as a Joss Whedon joint because it's a movie about a female with superhuman strength. Even more so than Buffy, it feels very Firefly-like because it's in space. So you can definitely tell that his sense of humor is here. And there's a lot of really good lines in this. Like, it's a pretty funny movie and it's a very entertaining movie, I think. It moves really fast. I mean, this is absolutely nowhere near the level of Alien or Aliens. It's not a classic movie by any means. But I think it has some interesting ideas in it. In the scenes where, like, Ripley goes into the laboratory where there are all these failed attempts to clone her and how she sees this evolution of herself. And I think that's the moment when she kind of realizes that she is a freak, she's a science experiment, and she's kind of become the other that she's been fighting through all of these other movies. I would have liked that in another movie franchise. I just didn't like that it was Ripley and Alien. Like, I didn't like that, but I felt like that concept was interesting of seeing all these Mm. different versions of clones of yourself. But why didn't you like it in this? Because I hate that she became a clone. Like, I hate I hate where they took her story. Because we had just watched Alien 3. <laughs> I'm being serious. Like, I just don't like where they... As soon as Aliens ended, I don't like where they took the story at all. Like, I didn't like that she was a clone. I didn't like that she died. I didn't like that she became, like, superhuman. Like, I just felt like all of that had nothing to do with the first two movies and the reality that was, that was based in. It just became, like, a bonkers sci-fi anything goes craziness which the first two movies aren't oh see i don't think it's an anything goes thing because i think the threat of the scientists for Wayland yutani like picking up the mission and and taking it like mass industrial scale like they are in this in alien resurrection i think that's a logical continuation of where the story was going um i i maybe it's just that Alien 3 shat the bed so much in terms of just taking the story to an unbelievable place, you know, or whatever, that it kind of doesn't feel worth returning to anymore. I can see that. Um, But I do feel like it's kind of a logical extension. Yeah, I think Alien 3 definitely went the wrong direction, but I think this does a really smart job of getting back 
on track, more or less. I mean, given that Ripley died in the end of the first one, I think bringing her back as a clone is a really interesting way to get her back in this movie. And to, like, she's not the same character. It's so interesting that this thing that she fought and was against, so fought so hard against in three different movies, now is inside of her. And, and that's very much part of the alien mythology that there's something inside you that you can't control and now it's not even just living in her chest it's actually in her dna and she she has some memories of being ripley but she also can't remember newt's name anymore i think that's really like that's a really sad scene that mourns newt's death way more than the third did even though that was dealing with the direct aftermath is it's just really sad that she's She's become an alien herself, basically. She's not human. She's kind of a freak, and she knows it, and she has a little bit of sassiness that I think is meant to be part of the alien in her. And I just, I find that a really interesting character. Like, it almost could be its own franchise just, you know, based on that, but I think it's, I don't know. I just find that really interesting. I also, think it's a smart think, way to go. Also, I think we can't leave out the most important moment in the Alien franchise, the erotic xenomorph encounter. Yes. Where Ripley <laughs> becomes enveloped sexually within the Alien Queen. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this movie does end with what is called the newborn, which is kind of another alien-human hybrid that, interestingly sees Ripley as its mother and kills the alien queen who we have seen actually give birth to it. So that's a little bit silly. I think that kind of devolves into some kind of cartoony madness. But in so many ways, this movie is more in keeping with Alien and Aliens than Alien 3 is. There's so much in this one that the other ones did well, including that weird sexiness, like whether or not the end works that great, at least it's kind of in here. And it's not like the Alien 3 just tried to throw in a rape scene, which it wasn't a good fit for yeah. for that. But this is back in that like squishy, nasty kind of realm of body horror. Also, I mean, the third dropped the ball on having an android in the movie. Um, there, there isn't one, is there? Mm-mm. I don't think so. Yeah, that's a really important part of this franchise, and they continued that with you know Prometheus and Michael Fassbender's character, and I think that is part of the story. And it's interesting th- the way that this deals with it and makes it a woman. She's kind of the protagonist of the movie. She's the one that we assume is kind of the audience proxy, and yet she ends up being an android as well. And so it's this interesting tale of two women who are outsiders. I mean, you can look into it as being kind of like a lesbian subtext thing. You know, I don't want to go too far into that, but sure, like it could be kind of a metaphor for that. But it roots the movie back in feminism to have, again, two female characters that end up being kind of the survivors, which has been true of the first two movie, like Lambert is the second to last to die. And then Newt, and now with this, and it, it's an interesting evolution. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels you can draw between these three that, like, the third one just doesn't really fit in there in any way. So, like I said earlier, I mean, Alien really influenced the entire sci fi genre. Pretty much every movie in space looks a little bit like Alien or has some kind of idea from there. Like the movie Life that just came out this year is very, I didn't see it, but it's supposedly very similar. And it's interesting that Ridley Scott and Sigourney Weaver are both as prolific today, almost 40 years later, 
She's still a big star. She's in a lot of sci-fi movies. I think she's one of the most likable stars I can think of. Yeah, who doesn't like Sigourney Weaver? Yeah, no one. She just had a small cameo voice role in Finding Dory. <laughs> uh, that was pretty funny. Yeah, she's, I mean, she basically became kind of what Jamie Lee Curtis is to the horror franchise is, you know, she's been in Galaxy Quest. She was in Cabin in the Woods, which isn't a space movie, but it's kind of a little sci-fi. Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, she really um, capitalized I wanna, on that. I want to just pause briefly to say that Galaxy Quest is one of the best comedies of the last 30 years, and she is one of the best parts of it. I haven't seen it. It's good. It is awesome. There were two Alien versus Predator movies that... I didn't see, most people didn't see, aren't considered to be canon, really. Um, and then Prometheus, which I think is about 75% of a good movie and has a lot of really interesting ideas. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite beautiful and well acted. I think there are definitely some I story think it's problems. like 60% of a good movie and then like another 55% of a terrible movie. <laughs> it's overflowing. I couldn't get 20 it minutes really into is. it. It's bad. Like, I turned it it's, off after. It's got pretty moments, but. And I think it's interesting that this franchise is directed completely by people who are kind of known for feminism. Uh, Ridley Scott did G.I. Jane and Thelma and Louise. Like, those are really interesting movies about women. I James Cameron. Say, I wouldn't say Ridley Scott's known for fem feminism. I mean, he's not known specifically for that, but he's definitely made movies that are interesting about women. Like, David Fincher's only done, like, Girl of the Dragon tattoo. Yeah. And Panic Room and Gone Girl. Those okay, are... okay, all right. And then uh, Joss Whedon wrote the fourth one. He didn't direct it, but he's also very much talked about as a feminist mm -hmm. filmmaker. So I think it's interesting that all of these films have that DNA of someone who went on. I mean, this was pretty much all of their one of their first movies. And yet they all went on to create more movies that had positive females in there. So I wonder if Alien kind of maybe developed that in them. And in, in the, if they hadn't been a part of the Alien franchise, maybe they wouldn't have thought about women in the way that they ended up maybe doing in their mm -hmm. in their movies. So, are you guys going to see Alien Covenant? <laughs> I'm just going to rewatch Alien and Aliens. Yeah, I'm less excited now that I know that it is a Prometheus sequel. Mm -hmm. um, like, significantly lowering my expectations. But the trailer was really good, um, and I like the cast. I love Danny McBride. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game to watch it, definitely. Yeah, Prometheus was good enough for me to see this one, and, you know... I'm not dying for a whole lot. There are going to be, I think, two more sequels to this that are mm. supposed to bridge the gap. And Sigourney Weaver has also expressed interest in doing another Alien movie. Um, there was supposed to be an Alien 5, and I think Joss Whedon wrote it, and then she didn't want to go to Earth like this movie was set on Earth. So, oh, really? Yeah. And, because she basically is ripley now she owned like, yeah it's yeah you can't do ripley without sigourney Weaver. right yeah she has to sign off on it but um i actually think it would be really interesting if david fincher did another alien movie and actually like got to make it like a david fincher movie That's yeah that'd probably be great yeah i'm yeah i'd totally watch so i think let's give david fincher another shot <laughs> All right, our next episode centers on a New Jersey-born filmmaker who was a major player in the rise of independent cinema, which happened when we were young. Nah. Tune into the next episode to find out who it is. It's, it's Kevin Smith. It's Kevin Smith. No. We're going to do Chasing Amy, so watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready, you watch guys. Watch it so you can play along with us.
And that's all the chest bursting we have time for on the Xenomorph Encounter for the evening. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed our shenanigans and you want to get more of them, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You'll be able to download all the episodes of the podcast there. And also, you can leave us a review there and give us some stars, namely five of them. You don't have to be Becky in order to leave a review on the podcast. But it helps. It doesn't hurt. It certainly doesn't. It actually hurts a little because, you know, it's one of our hosts and not an an actual person who likes us. I have opinions about our show. (laughs) Yeah, Chris, why isn't (laughs) Becky allowed to have opinions, damn it? I mean, she's a little biased. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. There are plenty of other ways to follow us as well. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. You can tweet us on the Twitter machines at www.yshow. You can email us at www.yshow at gmail.com if you have suggestions for any future episodes. And if you'd like to help us defray the cost of producing and editing a show that we give to you entirely for free, you can contribute to us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash young. Thank you, and I've been Seth. I'm Becky. I'll be Chris. And let's all lay eggs down your throat now. Mine? Or the listeners? I meant the listeners, Chris. I mean, like, really... You were looking at me when you said that. Well, I wasn't thinking of you. I'm gonna lay eggs down the listeners' throats. If I had a dollar for every time someone said they were thinking of me while they were thinking of laying eggs down their throats... <laughs> Are we done? Are we done? Can this end? We're never done. <laughs>